morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Bible Church. And it's my pleasure this morning to preach from God's Word. I'm a teacher at SFA. And um, a few years ago, I had a student in a freshman level math course. The kind of course that many students just take to get their math out of the way and never want to touch math again. Maybe some of you here this morning are in a similar course. Uh, this student missed about a week of class early on in the semester, and an exam was coming up. And so I began to reach out to them and say, everything okay? And I encountered an excuse, a explanation that I had not encountered before, ever. Uh, this student was in jail. And I remember thinking, okay, I've got this crazy idea. I really don't want the student to fall behind. I'll, I'll reach out to them and see if I can get on the visitor list. Go help them out while they're incarcerated. And so I did. I emailed the student, messaged them, and said, hey, put me on your visitor list. I'll come by on those days and I'll call the authorities just to check and note your name's not on the visitor list. Oh, man. Well, the semester continues to roll on. This student does return to class. And I do get to know them a little bit. On one particular occasion during the SSA meal with a mentor week, I invited them to lunch, and we had lunch together. It was great. We talked stories. He told me about he and his girlfriend's plans. He told me about what he could to say. We even talked a little bit about church, talked a little bit about Jesus. It was a good, a good meal. And then the semester continues to roll on. And this student just struggling, hanging on. Near the end of the semester, I remember the student had to make this particular grade on the final exam in order to pass. And so he and I formed a game plan, and he was going to study this and this and this, and he was going to be ready. So he takes the final exam. He finishes up, he gathers his papers together, walks up to the front of the classroom, hands me his papers, smiles, extends his hand, I shake it, and I smile, and he says, thanks, Mr. Sullivan. And then he leaves. I didn't know if I needed to be offended or just laugh, so I chose to laugh. Um, after all that I did for him, he got my name wrong? I couldn't believe it. So at first glance, he got my name wrong. The reality is probably deeper. The why? Did he just have a momentary lapse in memory? Did he always think my name was Mr. Sullivan? I wasn't sure what could have explained this. The fact that he got my name wrong tells a good story, but it's the reality, it's the deeper truth, it's the why that matters as much as or more than the first glance reveals. This morning, we're going to look at four different observations. Each of them is going to have a first glance, and each of them is going to have a, a deeper reality. And by the way, this does not mean that the first glance is incorrect. Just because we explore the deeper reality does not negate that the poor kid got my name wrong. That's happened. The passage we're looking at today that uh, Jerry read for us just a moment ago, John 18 and 19, is in the middle of this narrative, and the suspense is increasing and increasing. So I'm going to try to set the stage as best I can. We've seen in recent weeks that 
Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus three times. The chief priest questioned Jesus uh, in that trial in the middle of the night. At one point, the high priest says this, Tell us if you are the Son of God. To which, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, Jesus responds, You have said so, but I tell you that you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, that caused the stir. The high priest tore his clothes and said, We don't need any more witnesses. You've heard it with your own ears. He is deserving of death. And they condemned him. Here's the problem. Capital punishment in a Jewish context is one thing, but in a Roman occupying power is another. The chief priest needed to condemn him to death legally, and if that were to happen, they figured they needed Roman authority. You might say they needed to do this right by their own standards. As Bruce explained last week, this trial was really like a foe trial. There were missteps. It was in the middle of the night. There were false witnesses. We could go on and on. But in their eyes, they did things right. Back to our passage, John 18, 28. It says, They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. The Passover festival is a massive Jewish tradition in their culture. And there were laws prohibiting the participation in the feast if you were unclean. And entering Pilate's headquarters would have made them ceremonially unclean because he was, after all, a Gentile. And quite possibly, a number of very sinful things had gone on in that place. Yet it was hypocritical for the chief priest to facilitate an unjust trial and say, far be it from us to defile ourselves by injuring this sinful place while we get this innocent man sentenced to death the right way. Our first observation this morning in verses 28 to 32 is this. At first glance, hypocritical sinners send Jesus to the cross. Hypocritical sinners are what send Jesus to the cross. It says that early in the morning, Pilate goes out to hear them and he asks, what accusation do you bring against this man? It's possible, maybe even likely, that Pilate knew what was going on already. He had soldiers involved in Jesus' arrest, soldiers that were around during the trial, which would explain why the Jews responded defensively. If this man were not doing evil, then we would not have brought him over to you. It's as if they were frustrated because it seems Pilate wanted to start the whole trial over again. Hey, man, we've already tried and sentenced him. We know what we're doing here. We didn't get you out here for nothing. And in the process of trying to explain themselves to Pilate, the religious leaders make a revealing assertion. They say that Jesus had done evil, which is a really big deal. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, we can read this in Mark 3, that the scribes accused Jesus of having an evil spirit. And Jesus said to them, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This is the infamous unforgivable sin. 
Now, if you're worried, oh no, I don't want to commit the unforgivable sin, then you probably aren't. The context of Jesus' words in Mark 3 is clear. God the Spirit testifies about God the Son. So blaspheming the Spirit is the position of the heart. It's a position that connects the work of Jesus with the work of Satan. And such a position does not want forgiveness from Jesus. But make no mistake, it's not a good idea to associate the work of Jesus with the work of the devil. And we see that this is precisely what these hypocrites do. They accused Jesus of doing evil. They had him arrested. They brought him before Pilate. And it seems that at every turn, Jesus was going along with it. When, you were, when Jesus was confronted in the garden, and he was about to be arrested, he just said, what are you guys doing here? He said, Who, whom do you seek? I am you. Then Peter draws his sword, and he looks at Peter and says, Peter, put away your sword. He finishes that up with, Surely, shouldn't I bear the cup? Shouldn't I drink the cup that the Father has given me? It just seems like at every turn, Jesus is going along with this. So at first glance, hypocritical sinners send Jesus to the cross, but in reality, Jesus went willingly. Wasn't it Jesus who previously said, I give my life as a ransom for many? Wasn't it Jesus who said, Peter, put away your sword? Wasn't it Jesus who said, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep? And he would lay down his life willingly. He had set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He knew what awaited him. He would be delivered into the hands of sinners, arrested, put on trial, and suffer greatly. The road that he was on was headed to the cross, and he knew it was coming. Our second observation is this. At first glance, evil is winning, and Jesus' trial continues. How it says, Take it yourself and judge him by your own law. To which they reply, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was not entirely accurate. The Jewish mode of capital punishment was stoning, yet they are seeking Roman capital punishment, which is crucifixion. Verse 32 says, This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. For a moment, turn back a few pages to John 12. You can keep your thumb here. We'll be back. We see in John 12 that Jesus is troubled because his hour had come and a voice came from heaven. And the crowd thought that it had thundered. Others claimed that an angel spoke to him. Let's read in verse 30. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He would be lifted up. In John 3 it says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, 
that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, Jesus predicted that he would be crucified. And we see it about to unfold in these coming chapters. He knew he was on his way. Is this not why he prayed, Father, take this cup from me, yet not by my will, but by yours? You see, the cup was a reference to suffering and affliction. Does this mean that evil is winning? Perhaps at first glance. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry as an adult, we read in Mark 1.14 that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Gospel means good news. But here in John 18, all I'm hearing is bad news. That's all I'm reading about. What makes the good news so good is that it invades bad news. At first glance, evil is winning, and Jesus' trial continues. But in reality, the kingdom of God has arrived. God's kingdom is a massive theme in the Scriptures. And there's been much discussion about what it is exactly. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of papers and writings concerning the kingdom of God have been written and debated and discussed. Yet, to me, God's kingdom seems to be an elusive topic. Pilate wasn't sure. He asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus always has this way of returning a questioner with his own question in order to unveil the questioner's heart. Jesus asked, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say to you about me? It's like he's saying, who do you say that I am, Pilate? Pilate gets a little defensive. Am I a Jew? Did I bring you here? As if he's saying, I'm the judge, Jesus. I'm not on trial here. Don't turn this on me. What have you done, he said. To which Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom. Did you catch that? In Mark, it was, the kingdom of God is near. But here we read Jesus say, my kingdom. So what exactly is the kingdom of God? Is it, is it a place? Is it a group of people? Is it heaven? Well, I find a helping uh, definition, a working definition of kingdom of God from Jeremy Treat's book, Seek First. He defines the kingdom as God's place through God's people, sorry, God's reign through this land of heaven. God reigns through God's people over God's place. God reigns through God's people over God's place. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He doesn't say in the world. The kingdom of God is certainly in the world. But he says it is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be doing what? They would be fighting. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. It is breaking into this world, and it is contrasted in the scriptures with the kingdoms of the world. Kingdoms of this world will fight tooth and nail. They will fight. But God's kingdom turns the other cheek. 
The kingdoms of this world strive and grapple for power. But God's kingdom power is made perfect in weakness. The kingdoms of this world will oppress people and hold them down. God's kingdom sets the captives free. The kingdoms of this world want their ears tickled by fake news and what they want to hear. But God's kingdom rests in the truth. And Jesus embodies this truth himself. God's kingdom is not solely a place full of perfect circumstances. Now, don't hear me wrong. Yes, we want peace in our city. We want healing for the sick. We want stable livelihoods for the poor. We want homes for the homeless. We want justice for the oppressed. We want evil to be eliminated. We want these things. And maybe there are some of you that God is calling to participate in those efforts. We want all humans to be treated with dignity and with respect. All humans are made in God's image, no matter one's ethnicity, no matter one's stage of development, no matter one's sin, struggle. All of us are deserving of dignity and respect because we are made in His image. Wouldn't it be great if there were such a place? Thank God there is such a place. God's kingdom. But if you only want a good place without God, then you don't want God's kingdom. Because in God's kingdom, there is a king. And his name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Six centuries before Jesus was born, Isaiah 9 prophesied this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, will do this. And make no mistake, God's kingdom is amazing. But it's because our God is amazing. So you are, King Pilate says. Jesus answers, you have said it. Now listen to this. Jesus continues, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, Pilate, perhaps not wanting to... Uh, in the there, maybe he wanted the last word. I'm not sure. But he says, what is truth? And then he returns to Jesus' accuser and says, I find no guilt in him. This is the first time out of four that we see Pilate trying to free Jesus. And he goes on, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? No. They demand the release of Barabbas, a robber, a violent man, a sinner, you might say. Isn't this an interesting substitution? The sinner is released, and a righteous man goes deeper into trial and sentencing and punishment and crucifixion. That's not right. That's not just. That's outright scandalous. Yet, it is a core element of the Christian faith. 
Christianity is not about good people getting better and climbing that ladder of morality. Christianity is about sinners like me being forgiven, being set free because of the work of the righteous one. First Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He would bear the sins of the world and pay a terrible price. And we get a clear view of this as we continue. In one verse, it says, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. A Roman flogging was not merely an unpleasant experience. It wasn't just inconvenient. It was brutal. The whips were comprised of leather straps with chips of bone and metal attached to the ends. There would be two holes dug in the ground nearby, one filled with salt, one with vinegar. The whips could be dipped in each one before the last. There's a reason why the passing of the movie, the passing of the Christ, is rated R. This is a brutal beating. Our third observation this morning. At first glance, Jesus is beaten and mocked mercilessly. You see this in 19 verses 1 through 5. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Their sarcasm is clear in the text. They were mocking him, yet somehow the irony seems to turn the sarcasm into reality. You see, at first glance, Jesus is beaten, mocked, mercilessly. But in reality, Jesus is coronated as king. Now, I realize we live in a democratic republic, and monarchy is, well, a foreign idea to many of us in America. Uh, but I know about Coronation Day because I've seen the movie Frozen a thousand times. When royalty is about to be coronated, which means crown, by the way, there is preparation, there is cleansing, there is a proper dressing up. Well, in Jesus' case, he was cleansed by slaughtering. Normally, royalty is given a crown, golden, maybe silver, definitely flawless. But in Jesus' case, he was given a crown of thorns, rugged, painful. Royalty is given a people who bow in submission at coronation because of his authority. But Jesus was given pagan Roman soldiers who would bend their knees and mockingly say, Hail Jesus. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know, second time, that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now when royalty is brought before their people, following the coronation, people usually chant, Long live the king. Long live the queen. But in Jesus' case, they said, Death to him. Crucify him. And Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. For the third time, 
Jesus answered him. The Jews answered Pilate. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Here's our fourth observation. At first glance, the Jews claim legal justification. This is 19 verses 6 through 16 we'll be looking at. The Jews claimed legal justification. The Jewish chief priests were guarding themselves with legality. Earlier in John 18.31, they said it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. But now they say, according to law, we have to die. They are using the letter of the law in order to rationalize their own sin. Can anybody identify with that? I can. Using the letter of the law to rationalize our own sin. And what is sad is their misinterpretation of the very laws that they intended to uphold. In John 5, in fact, Jesus tells the Pharisees and the scribes, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They got his name wrong. And his purpose. And his message. When Pilate heard them say Jesus had made himself the Son of God, he was even more afraid. What if he's right? What if he is the Son of God? And so he returns to Jesus quickly and says, Where are you from? Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. From then on, Pilate sought to release him for the fourth time. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, then you are not a friend of Caesar. Ain't that some political rhetoric? Away with him, crucify him, they said. Pilate asked one more time, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. At first glance, the Jews claimed legal justification. But in reality, they rejected Yahweh. A thousand years before Jesus was born, the Israelite people asked the prophet Samuel for a king, like all the other nations. This is in 1 Samuel 8. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And God responded, Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. We have no king but Caesar, they said. Turn back to Matthew 21 with me for a moment. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth perfectly. It was very good. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. Since that time, God has been on a mission to redeem His people and restore creation. He had laws written 
But humans would break laws. He established a sacrificial system. But the priests sometimes would be corrupt. He seated judges, but the people did what they wanted in their own eyes. So God gave the people kings, but they did not follow after God's ways. God then spoke to the people through prophets. But people did not always listen to them. In fact, some of them killed the prophets that God would send. In all these ways, God has His purposes. I would suggest one purpose, among others, would be to reveal our need. We need a lawkeeper. We need an atoning sacrifice. We need a better priest, a better judge, a better king. A prophet. Matthew 21, verse 37 says, Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, this, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the garden and killed him. What should happen to these proverbial wicked tenants, Jesus now has, the ones he's talking to? And those who are listening pronounce their own judgment. The owner of the vineyard should put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. And Jesus replied, Have you never read the scriptures? The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. So how do we respond to this? Here at Grace Bible Church, we, we usually close with our next steps. These are meant to help you ask fruitful questions as you ponder, what is the Lord teaching you this morning? So maybe it's a takeaway for you. Maybe it's something the Lord has brought your mind to repent from. We have two next steps this morning. And the first one is this. What do you believe about Jesus? Everything in your life that matters hinges on your answer to this question. Jesus has done so much for you and for me. He thought after me when I missed a week of class and when I got caught up in some trouble, when I was in jail, he thought after me. He not only put his name on the visitor list, but he actually paid my debt because he had the authority to me. And he freed me from my captivity. If you are in Christ, then you are no longer behind bars for what you've done. You are free indeed. And if you are not in Christ, then I would urge you, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. The second next step is this. If we believe that he is the king, then we should not act like we are. Our allegiance is to His rule, His authority, His provision, His ways, and how lovely are His ways, how abundant is His provision, how powerful is His authority, and how certain is His rule. He not only saves our soul, giving us full assurance of being with Him someday, but He sanctifies us in the meantime, He tutors us. He disciplines us when we stray, like a loving father. 
And He allows us to go through tests and trials. Maybe you're experiencing trials this week, this month, this year. Regardless of our circumstances, Jesus remains on His throne. We serve a King who is not distant from us. And I want to quote Romans 4, uh, Hebrews 4. Excuse me. We serve a King who is not distant from us, but one who has passed through the heavens, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who was without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Amen. Mm-hmm.